This is Reverse Deception Radio on the Veritas Radio Network, Crusade Channel. Hello, boys and girls. This is your old pal, Stinky Whizzleteats. King Size Truth. This is a song about a whale. No. From Radio Size Speakers. This is a song about being happy. That's right. It's the Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy song. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. I don't think you're happy enough. That's right. I'll teach you to be happy. Now, boys and girls, let's try it again. We need donuts and coffee. Hot. Do what he say. Do what he say. Damn good coffee and hot. If then you ain't the granddaddy of all liars. Whoa. Did you just make that up? Darn you. Darn you old hat. with sweatshop labor in a foreign factory and gets packed on a vessel and shipped over the sea it's loaded onto trailers and it's spread across the map big box mart is the place i go to buy all of my crap oh big box mart what do you have for me because our shopping carts are empty and we're on a shopping spree i come to the big box mart Cause I do have lots of needs And they sell crap the cheapest With their discounts guaranteed When I'm walking through the aisles It's like I'm hypnotized With a wallet full of credit cards I never leave deprived Oh, Big Box Mart Thank you for serving me Cause my house is full of crap now And it used to be empty The next day at the factory The news was very grim My job was being outsourced to the slums of East Beijing. Management was streamlining the company's org chart. We gotta make crap cheap enough to sell to Big Box Mart. Oh, Big Box Mart, look what you've done to me. He's gotta start all over at the age of 53. I still go to Big Box Mart, yes, I'm there most all the time. These days you'll likely find me sweeping aisle number nine. My dreams of a retirement have gone up in a blaze. And I'll be scrubbing toilets till they stick me in the grave. Oh, Big Box Mart, what have you sold to me? We used to be your customers, now we're your employees. Oh, Big Box Mart, my paycheck reminds me. Your everyday low prices have a price. They are and free. Paper or plastic? This is Gregory Carpenter, and welcome to another episode of Reverse Deception Radio here on the Veritas Radio Network Crusade Channel. Broadcasting today from the People's Democratic Republic of Northern Virginia, we bring to you the job report. Amazon is going to kill more American jobs than China did. This article is a little bit old, but it goes to the heart of what we're discussing today. We're going to start off with this one, then we're going to give you a follow-up. 
Amazon.com has been crowing about its plans to create 100,000 American jobs in the next year. But as with other recent job creation announcements, that figure is misleading without context. What Amazon won't tell us is that every job created at Amazon destroys one or two or three or four others. What Jeff Bezos doesn't want you to know is that Amazon is going to destroy more American jobs than China ever did. Amazon has revolutionized the way Americans consume. Those who want to shop for everything from books to diapers increasingly go online instead of to the malls. And for about half of those online purchases, the transactions go through Amazon. For the customer, Amazon has brought lower prices and unimaginable convenience. I can buy almost any consumer product I want just by clicking on my phone or computer. Or even easier, I can say, Alexa, buy me, or Siri, buy me, and it will be shipped to my door within days or even hours for free. I can buy books for my Kindle or music for my phone instantly. I can watch movies, TV shows on demand, you name it, it's available. But for retail workers, Amazon is a grave threat. Just ask the 10,100 workers who are losing their job at Macy's, or the 4,000 at The Limited, or the thousands of workers at Sears and Kmart, which just announced 150 stores will be closing. Remember, folks, this article is from January last year, or the 125,000 retail workers who've been laid off over the past two years. Online sales are growing much faster than sales at stores found in malls and shopping centers. Amazon and other online sellers have decimated some sectors of the retail industry in the past few years. For instance, employment at department stores has plunged by, hang on, 250,000 or 14 percent since 2012. Employment at clothing and electronic stores is down sharply from the earlier peaks as more sales move online. Consumers' affinity for digital shopping felt like it hit a tipping point in holiday 2014 and has rapidly accelerated this year. And now, digital shopping, which is pretty much Amazon, which has increased its share of online purchases from about 10% five years ago to about 40% in the 2016 Christmas season. 44% in the 2017 Christmas season. And it's only going to go higher as Amazon aggressively targets other sectors, such as groceries and even restaurants with delivery services, for restaurant-prepared meals. At the end of 2016, the retail sector employed 16.5 million workers. And the restaurant industry employed another 11.4 million. Together, that's nearly one out of every five workers 
in the union. The same share of employment accounted for by the manufacturing sector in 1982. Many of those jobs are threatened by Amazon's incredible growth. But some are relatively safe. Most of the 11.4 million restaurant jobs are safe from online competition because people still love going out to eat and someone has to cook and wash the dishes. 1.3 million working at car dealerships probably won't be affected and neither will the 1 million at gas stations or the 1.1 million working at building material stores won't buy a new car or a gallon of gas or 50 sheets of drywall online anytime soon. However, about 12 million jobs in retail are facing increasing competition from Amazon, particularly the 6.2 million people who work in the kind of stores that are typically found at malls or shopping centers. Furniture, appliance, electronics, clothing, sporting goods, bookstores, and general merchandise stores what the statisticians call GAFO, general merchandise, apparel and accessories, furniture, and other sales. GAFO is the heart of what we think of as retail, and that's where Amazon has revolutionized the market. After years of barely holding its own, sales at GAFO stores have stalled, falling $1.8 billion, or 0.6%, in the last year alone, while the rest of of retail was growing 4%. Meanwhile, online sales jumped by 13.7 billion through the third quarter of 2016, and Amazon accounted for almost all of that. It just took over Macy's. It just overtook Macy's, I should say, as the country's top retailer of apparel. Now, at current growth rates, Amazon would have annual revenue of $500 billion in five years. As traditional retailers close stores and dismiss workers, shopping at the mall will make less and less sense. There's not much retailers like Macy's, Best Buy, and Barnes & Noble. There's not much they can do about it. Their business will be much, much smaller. And now that Amazon is getting serious about groceries, even Walmart is threatened. And if you remember in the movie, Idiocracy, corporate America eventually took over the government, didn't they? Because they were so big, the Brando Corporation... Pretty much everybody worked for the Brondo Corporation. Like Brondo, Amazon is that corporation that is emerging from the old brick-and-mortar stores that we're so traditionally used to. The growth numbers are incredible. It's amazing what numbers they've put up. You know... For example, Macy's has floor walkers and saleswomen at the makeup counter, cashiers and folks like that. But they're not going to be they're not going to be selling because people are switching to Amazon. Think about the costs involved. 
X number of people are going to help you at a Macy's. All of those people have to be paid. There's workers' compensation. There's retirement plans. There's managers in place. There's a whole lot of infrastructure behind making a sale at Macy's. On the other hand, all I need is somebody to drop something in a bin, ship it out the door, and Amazon has your order off the shelf and gone. Right? Amazon has pickers in the warehouses. And all they do is grab hundreds of items off the shelves every hour. Now, it says it's going to hire more pickers this year as it opens more distribution centers. But what's funny, when you think about this in the big picture, are those jobs even safe from Amazon? Well, you're not really sure, are you? No. Let's do this. Let's go to the other article. And let's take a look at what's happening now. Now remember, a year ago, it was supposed to become problematic. However, now we're looking at a situation that actually even catches Amazon off guard. From the New York Times, as Amazon pushes forward with robots, Workers find new roles. From the New York Times, Nick Wingfield. Nisa Scott started working at the cavernous Amazon warehouse in southern New Jersey late last year, stacking plastic bins the size of small ottomans. It was not, she says, the most stimulating activity, and lifting the bins, which often weigh 25 pounds each, was also tiring over a 10-hour shift. Now, Ms. Scotch, 21, watches her replacement, a giant, bright, yellow, mechanical arm, do the stacking. Her new job at Amazon is to babysit several robots at a time, troubleshooting them when necessary and making sure they have bins to load. On a recent afternoon, a claw at end of the arm grabbed a bin off a conveyor belt and stacked it, oh no, on another bin, forming neat columns on wooden pallets surrounding the robot. It was the first time Amazon had shown the arm, the latest generation of robots in use at its warehouses. For me... It's the most mentally challenging thing we have here, Ms. Scott said of her new job. It's not repetitive. Now, if staring at robots doing the work you used to do is the most mentally challenging thing available in your vocation, you have something that needs to be said for your vocation if you're looking for mentally challenging work. I continue on. Perhaps no company embodies the anxieties and hopes around automation better than Amazon. Many people, including President Trump, 
blame the company for destroying traditional retail jobs by enticing people to shop offline, uh, shop online, pardon me. At the same time, the company's eye-popping growth has turned it into a hiring machine with an unquenchable need for entry-level warehouse workers to satisfy customer orders. Isn't this what we've talked about on this show and several others? I know Mike's talked about this quite a bit, too. The skilled workers are not needed in the workplace. Those jobs are going away. The people with those types of vocations are being replaced, and they're being replaced by these robots. All you need is somebody with a... It doesn't even have to be a high school diploma anymore, but we're going to send... So here it is. We're going to send everybody to college, but not everybody needs to go to college because most of them are going to come out of college with tons of debt and no prospect for a job because we're pursuing things like medieval studies and planning on getting a job with that degree. Now, if you want to teach, go back, finish your Ph.D., and then you can teach medieval history or something like that. That's okay. But don't just get out with a bachelor's degree in medieval studies. You're going to be the most useless. Well, that'll be the most useless degree, amongst others that I can think of. But these jobs for seasoned professionals are going away. People are being replaced by artificial intelligence and robots. We don't need people there any longer. Why would we? You have to pay people a salary. You have workers' compensation, unemployment, things like that. The mechanical arm isn't going to give you an attitude. The mechanical arm isn't going to show up five minutes late. The mechanical arm is not going to charge you for overtime. The mechanical arm, dot, 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 insert, positive answer here. Amazon's global workforce is three times larger than Microsoft's and 18 times larger than Facebook's. Last week, Amazon said it would open a second headquarters in North America with up to 50,000 new employees. We're adding 50,000 jobs, and we're losing 250,000 a year. Doesn't sound like the type of math I want to be working with. This automation was discussed 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Heck, 50 years ago in some of the science fiction that you see out there. They talked about humans getting replaced by robots 50 years ago. People saw that coming. It's here now. It's not a dystopic science fiction perception. It's reality, and it's here today. Complicating the equation even more, Amazon is also on the forefront of automation, finding new ways of getting robots to do work once handled by employees. In 2014, the company began rolling out robots to its warehouses using machines originally developed by Kiva Systems, a company Amazon bought for $775 million two years earlier and renamed Amazon Robotics. 
Amazon now has more than 100,000 robots in action all around the world, and it has plans to add many more to the mix. The robots make warehouse work less tedious and physically taxing, while also enabling the kinds of efficiency gains that let a customer order dental floss and after breakfast and receive it before dinner. It's certainly true that Amazon would not be able to operate at the costs they have and the costs they provide customers without automation. Because of this, we probably, because of the automation, is probably one of the reasons why you can get the two-in-one-day shipping. The dynamics between people and machines play out on a daily basis on the floor of the Amazon warehouse in a place like Florence, New Jersey, in Kent, Washington. In Kent, the robots vaguely resemble giant beetles and scurry around with vertical shelves loaded with merchandise weighing up to 3,000 pounds on their back. Hundreds of them move autonomously inside a large caged area, tailgating each other, but never colliding. On the one end of the cage, a group of human workers, the stowers, stuff products into the shelves, replenishing their inventory. The robots whisk those shelves away, and when a customer order arrives for, for products stored on their backs, they queue up at stations on another edge of the cage, like cars, waiting to go through a toll booth. There, human pickers follow instructions on computer screens, grabbing items off the shelves and putting them in plastic bags, which then disappear on conveyor belts destined for, quote, packers, people who put the products in cardboard boxes bound for customers. Now, isn't that amazing? So just a little bit of a thought. Big Box Mart is or was the king. They put a lot of the little retail stores out of business. Now Amazon is king and is about to put the Walmarts, the Kmarts, the Big Box Marts out of business. What's it going to be that puts Amazon out of business? What do we do with that? And back into the nightmare that is Chrome again, shifting gears. Facebook Chrome extension shows everything that the site knows about its users. Isn't that nice? They're keeping an eye on you. Just what you would hope for. It's almost like having somebody from the CIA sitting right there with you every time you jump online. Now, even if you've done your best to hide from Facebook, it probably has a huge dossier on you. The huge amount of data that Facebook collects on every one of its users was exposed in a small Chrome extension. The site's ad tracking uses a huge amount of information about its users to provide marketing that it thinks will be both useful and successful. The algorithms that power that work are what has made Facebook such a huge success and they're still mostly secret, but they're built from a huge set of different inputs. And the site can watch, for instance, for people liking a particular status and then deciding what sort of films they might be into. They might tag photos at a particular place, write their favorite music on their profile, comment on an article about a politician or 
change their relationship status. And each of these pieces of information are logged as ways of knowing more about the person. So how do you beat it? Well, one of the things that I like to do, which is a lot of fun, is change the setting to sometimes to only me or to friends or custom. Uh, and that limits the number of people that can actually see what you're posting but so anything you put on Facebook from a status update to a photo to a link to a blog line can be given its own privacy setting. Means that public means that the information can be found via Google. So that's how people get stuff that's in your logged in Facebook account. They can just Google it if your setting is public. You can also create custom groups of friends to share with um where you can identify that each of the items that you have is only for your friends, in which case they'll have to log in, or if they're not in that group, then they can't see it, which is much better than having anything that you put up there be seen by Google. But remember, whatever you, your last setting was, the last thing you chose is going to be the default setting until you change it again. So just think of it that way. You just don't change it for one post and leave it and expect it to go back to what it was before. You have to go back and change it immediately. So what you can do is like things that you don't like, throw the computer off, take and post some pictures that you don't mean anything, right? A picture of a dog, get your neighbor's dog. Take a picture of a house, some house you just randomly pass by on the way to work or something, or go two streets over and take a picture of a house or somebody walking a dog. Do that. Facebook, will, the, the big data, the, the engine, uh, you know, the machines in the background that are using the algorithms to crush the data, they're going to get all bogged down because you're introducing a bunch of gibberish to it. Remember, it's looking for, and the setting is going to be only true. So it really doesn't understand if you put in fake data. So remember, it's it's not only your settings that you have. You want to put that stuff into, keep it off balance. Remember what your friends are sharing with their third-party apps. Your apps can be linked to Facebook, and then you can share like Instagram, WhatsApp, things like that, too, from your Facebook. So they can post things about you or with you and then have it set for public and have it posted to their third-party accounts. Some of the data doesn't even come from you and your interaction in Facebook. That's the bottom line. So ProPublica reports that the company, quote, buys data about its users' mortgages, car ownership, and shopping habits from some of the biggest commercial data brokers, unquote. Meaning that even if a user has done their best to stay unknown, then Facebook's dossier might be full of information. For that reason, the site ProPublica built a special Chrome extension that allows a person to see everything that Facebook says it knows about its users. Some of it is highly specific, 
including the size of a person's home or how many credit cards they have. And all of it is collected through the various interactions that people have with the site. I don't have, they didn't list the name of the app itself, but I'm sure we can find it by looking for ProPublica and finding on their site what they talk about. This sounds like a great Chrome extension so you can learn and identify what they have on you. What are the goods that they have on you? Wouldn't everybody like to know what's out there about them? Well, this is the way of doing it. ProPublica. Check them out. See if you can find out what that Chrome extension is. And then share it with us here at the Veritas Radio Network. Send me an email. gscarp12 at hotmail.com or tweet it out and tag me at gscarp12. I'd love to know about it. And I'll share it here with everyone else. It's something that we should be sharing and letting people know because do you really know how much of your information's been shared? You know, if they know how many credit cards you have, that's pretty specific. And so how, how in depth does this really go? How much more about you do they know? I'd sure like to know. Well, let's take a look at what's going on here. Just how much does Google know about you anyway? In exchange for freely using Google's various services from the search page in YouTube to Gmail, G Drive, uh, uh, the Google Drive and Maps, and Internet users implicitly allow Google to store and share their compiled information to third parties whether they like it or not. Some of the information Google stores is given directly to the company by the users themselves when they sign up for products, such as names, phone numbers, locations. Other information, however, Google gathers through recording and storing users' search terms and the items they click on while pursuing different items on the Internet. Based upon the information it gathers, Google attempts to discern its users' best it's, it's users' interests and habits. What's that saying is, is they're going to identify what's best for you through the way that you search and what you search for and what you use. In order to monitor the information Google has stored and to see what exactly Google thinks it knows about you and your habits, you can visit the Web and App Activity according to Business Insider. Then, if you visit the Ads Settings site, you can view Google's information logs and modify what it tells advertisers about you and your viewing habits. With these links, you can view the lists compiling all of the web pages that you have ever searched and clicked on. And if you choose, you can delete them. Now, Google, however, will only allow you to delete one day's information at a time, according to the Business Insider researchers. So if you wish to delete a year's worth of data, it'll take quite a while. 
And if you click on the menu icon at the top left corner of the web and app activity page, you can also view, manage, and delete the links pertaining to voice, location, device, and YouTube information as well. Deleting this information can also only be done at the rate of one day per click. So it's a little slow, but it is a way to address the amount of information that's out there on you and your activities and what you're doing. Now consider that you don't use Google for a year. Say you just start using something like DuckDuckGo that doesn't store your data and doesn't index your information and what you search for. Like we recommend, this is what we recommend on the Reverse Deception Show, my friends. Don't let them track you like that. Even if you delete your account, the information is still there. And if your profile or anything associated with your profile shows back up somewhere else, they'll take it and they'll link it to you again. It, it is intrusive. That's why you have these disclaimers that are 40, 50, 60 pages long because they know you're not going to read it. When's the last time you saw some law firm give a decision on whether it was a good idea or a bad idea for you to use a browser? You can tell me that never happened, and that's fine, because that'll be the truth. And the real truth is, these lawyers don't read that junk themselves. Because they want to get online just as badly as you do, or as badly as anybody else does. Takes a little bit of brains on our part to step up our game and say, okay, let's not do this stuff. Let's use the Brave browser. Let's use the DuckDuckGo search engine. These are the guys that are not going to index me. So how do you teach? How do people become aware? How do they learn? Well, recently there was a study conducted and showed that children are more likely to read if it's a book. In the study of children ages 4 to 6, those who had regular access to devices with e-reading capabilities iPad, Kindle, phones, things like that, did not tend to use their devices for reading. And this was the case even when they were daily book readers. Research also found that more devices a children has access to, the less they read in general. It suggests that providing children with e-reading devices can actually inhibit their reading and that paper books are often still preferred by young people. These findings match previous research, which looked at how teenagers prefer to read. This research found that while some students enjoyed reading books on devices, the majority of students with access to these technologies did not use them regularly for this purpose. Importantly, the most avid 
book readers did not frequently read books on screens. There's a popular assumption that young people prefer to read on screens. This was mainly driven by education writer Mark Prensky in 2001, who coined the term digital natives. This term characterizes young people as having high digital literacy and a uniform preference for screen-based reading. But young people do not have a uniform set of skills, and the contention that screens are preferred is not backed up by any research. Folks, if you give your kids something with a screen on it, they're going to play a game. They're going to do something other than sit and read on that thing. Kindles are made for old men like me. Kindles are not made for your child. The child's going to find the browser setting in that Kindle and start surfing the net. Back to the intellectual takeout article. Despite this, the myth has already had an impact on book resourcing decisions at school and public libraries in Australia, the United United States, and numerous other countries, with some libraries choosing to remove all paper books in response to a perceived greater preference for e-books. But by doing this, libraries are actually limiting young people's access to their preferred reading mode, which in turn could have a detrimental impact on how often they choose to read. You don't want your kid to read? Give them a Kindle. You don't want your kid to read? Give them an e-book of any kind. The research in this area has been clear. And again, I'm not going to say it's 100% because not all researchers agree, like with the global warming scam. All real researchers agree. Yeah, that's a way of calling people idiots because you can't figure out an intellectual way of dealing with something that's not substantiated that you're trying to tout. Here, so far, all the research that has been done shows that children ages 4, 5, and 6 in this study, in other studies I've seen it go up to 15, 16, the children all, all prefer a book as opposed to an electronic device because on the electronic device, even if it's something that's locked down, I've seen a couple studies that show even if it's locked down and all you can do is read on it, kids won't do it. When they do read off the electronic device, more research shows that they retain less information than if they read it out of a book. It's pretty clear so far, folks. It's pretty clear. Back to the article, young people are gaining increasing access to devices through school-promoted programs, and parents face aggressive marketing to stay abreast of educational technologies at home. Schools are motivated to increase device use with information and communication technology 
being marked as a general capability to be demonstrated across every subject, uh, excuse me, every subject area in curriculum. So why do students prefer paperback books? Well, reading on devices through an application opens up more room to be distracted for kids. Kids will most often switch between applications as opposed to stick with just one thing and focus on that. And for students who already experience difficulty with attention, the immediate rewards of playing a game may easily outweigh the potential long-term benefits of reading in their mind. Ergo, they're going to play the game every time. Digital literacy itself could also be an issue. In order to use a device to read books, children need to know how to use their devices for the purpose of reading the books. They have much motivation to learn how to use a device to play a game, but they have very little when it comes to reading a book. And in other, other ways, I would say that they need to probably learn how to access free reading material legally, like Project Gutenberg. Tons and tons of good reading material there. And it's all uh, it's stuff that's um, it's out of copyright, and it's historical. You can get everything from Dante's Inferno uh, to the story of the three, the three bears and Goldilocks. Everything in the world is up on Project Gutenberg. Great effort going on there. So the bottom line for this right now, folks, is that teaching kids, helping them learn, the old-fashioned way still works best. Research shows completely the opposite of what highly motivated salespeople are presenting to us right now. We have to be able to discern the differences and identify what's most important for our kids. And God knows we should know what's best for our kids as their parents. We need to be able to be involved with their life every day and, and do those things that they like. But also teach the kids. Don't just sit them in the corner with an e-reader and forget about them and write them off. Be involved in your kid's life every day. It makes such a difference. It really does. And now to wrap up the show today, I figured I'd go a little green. No, I'm not talking Kermit the Frog green. I'm talking, you know, environmentally, you know, environmental stuff like that. Not Al Gore green. That's kind of like Al Gore green is kind of a mauve. It doesn't really, it's not really green, is it? No, but this is green. And today we're going to talk about feeding the birds. Why are we going to talk about feeding birds? Because it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, I don't think so. When I was a little kid, my grandfather used to take about a pound of bird seed and throw it out on the driveway. Every winter morning, you see hundreds of birds, all kinds of birds, come out of nowhere. Most amazing thing I saw in my life. He'd have to sew it up. All, just all kinds of stuff. He had nuts out there. And he had his twenty two, and he would shoot the squirrels in the butt. Yeah. Kept them out of the bird food. He had woodpeckers and wrens and blue jays, cardinals, an occasional lark, orioles. Probably another dozen species I'm forgetting. It made me think, 
just how beautiful it was, how nice it was to feed the birds during the winter. And um, I decided to keep doing that. And of course, there's tons of benefits, tons of benefits. I think of it like this. It does take time, effort, money, dedication to consistently feed birds. But why? Why do people do that? Well, most obvious benefit of feeding birds is just simply to enjoy their company and the beauty that they bring to us. Birds will fly into pretty much any backyard, right? They don't understand how the government has locked down and said that you can pretend to own this property. We really own it, but you can pretend to own it for now. And so if somebody else comes onto this property, see they're, they're trespassing and stuff like that. So you can be angry at them for walking on the property that we let you think you own. And we can come back and repossess it anytime we want. But I, digressing from that, I would say that adding a feeder or two and, or different types of food stations attracts many, many different species. In the front of our house, we have bushes for hummingbirds. We have certain food that goes out in the back for tangers, chickadees, sparrows. We have some hard stuff for the woodpeckers. We have some suet put up that robins prefer the suet. And the lark prefer the suet. The colors, the songs, the behaviors that the birds all bring with them is just immensely enjoyable. I love seeing Amber, our youngest here. I just love seeing her face just brighten right up and smile as she watches the birds come by and do their dance and get food and the interactions they have with each other. But there's more than just that to feeding the birds. Feeding birds can be a fascinating educational activity for all ages. By changing the feeder styles and the food types, you can learn more about the birds to visit. Just by observing the birds will help you learn about their behaviors. Identification. Is that a female cardinal or a cedar wax ring? Their personalities and other aspects and you can see how the birds change season by season, the ones that come to visit you. One of the things that I enjoy greatly about having so many birds around the house is that the birds eat much more than seed and suet and nectar. <laughs> and feeding birds in your backyard also invites them to feast on the insects, the worms, the snails, the slugs, the spiders, anything with an S and everything else in your landscape. It can provide ideal organic pest control situation, and you'll end up using a whole lot less of that toxic insecticide stuff. Now, not only do birds eat insects that can help keep your landscape healthier, but they assist in flower pollination. And that'll, that'll create more luxuriant full flower beds and beautiful bird-friendly landscape, which will invite more birds. Many of the smaller birds, like sparrows and finches, eat a tremendous amount of seed. They're like the chihuahua of the bird world. They got all this energy. They're jumping. They're twitching. They're all over the place, and they got to eat. Well, the seed that they eat, especially from seed-bearing flowers or weeds, which are undesirable in the landscape, pretty much. Yeah, that, that's one of those things that they target. 
And if you feed these birds, it'll also attract them to the natural food sources in the landscape, including, including the seeds that are in the weeds. Think about the dandelions. Pick up those cute little dandelions and you blow them off in the air. And Any idea how much that's going to cost you over the next five years trying to get those weeds under control as they land into your yard and your kids laugh and it's just beautiful. It's going to cost you, pal. Well, let the wrens take care of that. Wrens will eat all, all of those seeds and look for more. One of the things that we like to do is my son is an avid photographer, and he loves to take pictures of nature. And I'll tell you what, the birds make a great opportunity. They'll sit out there regardless of him. Matter of fact, we had, um, not that long ago, we had a great horned owl in our backyard sitting on the fence son of a gun this thing came in and started nibbling some of the food that we had left out back Uh, we didn't expect an owl to pop out there during the day but sure enough we even had an owl come by what a great photo op that was so all kinds of things happen when you feed the birds you know you're interacting with nature too and to get little kids out there to do that that's a beautiful thing you can consider them your outdoor pets, too. <laughs> it's just it's just fun. It's just fun. And while feeding the birds brings backyard birders many benefits, it also benefits the birds by replacing food sources that have been destroyed by different developments. When homes are built and landscaped, birds lose nesting spots shelter and natural food sources proper feeding and bird-friendly landscape can help replace those resources so the birds and the birders can live together you can make for a better place for nature just by providing for nature with the things that we've taken from nature every time the army builds a building or puts something up somewhere or anybody in the defense department, they have to do an environmental impact study, environmental impact study. What's this going to do to my environment? Let's see. The joke about this is that they don't really consider the birds. They don't consider any of the animals, as a matter of fact, which is the same thing that's been happening for years, especially around here. We have a couple of fox that live out here, and but that's it. We have a couple of bald eagles few different type of hawk, red-tailed hawk, a few different types. But the predator, the list of predators, we'll say, has dropped severely. The balance of wild animals around here is completely distorted. We have lots of deer and a lot less birds. So think about them. Bring them back. Bring them back. I know we enjoy having them here. Getting the order right and getting right with everything that God has given us to manage When you get your bird feeders, clean them regularly. Don't spread disease in the bird feeders. Get a variety of food. Please think about it. Take care of God's creatures. I can't tell you that I found less than six or seven dead birds in my yard over the cold period of the winter. Even though we had food out, there wasn't enough for all the birds I could tell. There was others digging and pecking and looking for food. We had those long stretches sub-zero stretches here that we don't have in Virginia, and a lot of animals died. We destroy food sources regularly 
don't think about it, and we say we give back to nature. And, folks, that's the last thing in the world that's on our mind. If we take and we manage what God's given us, then we can say that we are truly an environmentalist. This has been Reverse Deception Radio with your host, Gregory Carpenter. God bless you all, and have a wonderful, blessed day. Deception Radio, Veritas Radio Network, Crusade Channel. Don't hack like my son. And don't hack like my dad. Yeah.